beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12, into the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if judgment begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, we again just acknowledge our our need of you for your wisdom, also God for your grace to live lives that are honoring to you, that you would be seen and magnified in our every response to every circumstance that you permit. We pray, God, that that our hearts would be instructed and our souls strengthened in the faith as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate Frank Cerrone standing in for me last week. I understand he was passionate. (laughs) That's good. Um, I was with um, all the family down in Lake Jackson where our oldest son lives. We haven't been together um, in over a year, so it was nice to have the weekend together. And then Patsy and I, Monday through Wednesday, went down to the Big Bend. I've never seen the Big Bend. It is a lot of desolate country out there. It's one of those places where I wonder if God ran out of ideas when he came to, came to that part of creation. It's got its own beauty, though. Um, last time, three sun- two Sundays ago now, um, the previous paragraph started, the end of all things is at hand. And I said, um, I introduced that sermon, I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm like Larry, I'm funny even when I'm not trying to be funny. Um, it's, always great to, it's always great to have you back, Larry. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, thank you. How do you know how bad you are? And I said, in assuming you aren't married. Um, <laughs> how do you know how bad the times are? Well, really, the answer is the same. And we know how bad we are, ultimately not because of the choices that we make, because we are so prone to justify ourselves and to excuse ourselves that no matter how bad we are, we can always find someone who's worse, and we can justify ourselves. Ultimately, it truly takes the Spirit of God to convince us, to convict us of our condition and of our desperate need for Him. The same is true when the Scripture tells us that the end of all things is at hand. No matter how bad things are, the people who don't know the Lord are prone to think it could be worse. It's not that bad. 
So the Bible tells us that even in the days of Noah, they were not thinking it was that bad. And so almost everybody was destroyed. And so we can look around our world today, and as you start to add up the years in your life, you can say, well, it's sure worse than it was when I was a kid. But is it so bad that judgment could come at any moment upon this world? And God says it is. It's that bad. The end of all things is at hand. And we should live, therefore, with sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. If that was true 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this, it is certainly true today. Not only should we live for the purpose of prayer, but we should also be fervent in our love for one another. And that looks like hospitality, caring for those who, who are without home because of persecution or who have other needs. And also serving one another through the gifts that God has given. And so we don't come to church, we don't associate with the body of Christ only to receive, but also to give, to love others and to serve them in accordance with the gifts that God has given us. Now this paragraph starts with a similar statement. It's not exactly the same, the end of all things is at hand, but verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is among you. It's always helpful to tell people in advance what they are about to ex experience if they have no background with it. So when I sit down with a young couple, Patsy and I, and do premarital counseling with them, we try to prepare them for what there is coming, both the joys and the sorrows. It's easy to talk about the joys, the sorrows, they kind of look at you and go, yeah, right. You know, and you just know, you're probably going to have to have this conversation again years later and say, we told you so, because they're not getting it. Um, I heard before becoming a grandparent that being a grandparent is the only thing in the world that is um, underrated. And, um, and I'm finding that to be true. It is wonderful being a grandparent. But I'm having to experience it for myself even though I've been told that. So we were with all four of the grandkids last weekend, and, and I like to squeeze them really hard and say, I'm going to squeeze all the stuffings out of you. And, um, and then I'll do it again and say, because the stuffings aren't out of you yet. So I'll do it a second time. So I'm doing that to one of the grandsons, and he says, well, you, after I've squeezed the stuffings out of him, he says, Pop, put them back. <laughs> <laughs> And so I thought, well, that's the first time they've ever been asked to put them back. So I, ask, so I act like I'm putting them back. It's wonderful being a grandparent. And then before we got in the car, he came running out to us, and he, and he bear hugged me, and he said, I love you, Pop, and he kissed me on the cheek. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a good thing being a grandparent. <laughs> but you have to experience it for yourself. If somebody is going to go into special forces, I think of the of the SEALs in particular, boy, there are all kinds of movies and all kinds of, of information out there. This is going to be hard. I understand that one of those weeks is called Hell Week because it is so hard, hardest thing they've ever been through. And still, no matter how prepared they are, many of them ring the bell and they check out because they just don't have what it takes. 
when Peter writes to this group of Christians who are being persecuted, he says, you should not be surprised at what you're going through. Paul did the same thing when he wrote to people. 1 Thessalonians especially is a letter where the Thessalonian church, right from the beginning, right? I mean, literally from the beginning, they were persecuted. Paul was persecuted in that city of Thessalonica, and when those people received Christ, they were immediately persecuted. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul wrote to them and, and said, When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, and Paul was only there for three Sabbaths, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. But still he was concerned that they would throw in the towel. We told you from the beginning that being a Christian is not all happy times, that it, there will be persecution for those who follow after Christ. There will be afflictions of many various kinds. So we have been, in fact, destined for this. So last words of Jesus after his, um, actually just prior to his, his crucifixion, not his very last words, but the upper room discourse in John there in chapter 16, especially 15 and 16, he says, they've hated me, they are going to hate you. They, they are put, going to put me to death, they are going to put you to death. You will be handed over even in the synagogues and be scourged and people are going to think that they are doing a service to God. So Jesus knew that his disciples needed to be prepared for this. Paul understood new Christians need to be told, you are going to suffer persecution. And now Peter is saying the same thing. It seems to be a bit of a theme in the New Testament. Christians suffer. And yet, every one of us, when it happens, typically our first thought is, why? What have I done? Why is this happening to me? We should not be surprised. The opposite of not being surprised is we should expect this. We will suffer. And there are a variety of ways we suffer. James will say that, that we should, should count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Peter uses the same phrase, various trials. They can be physical with our health. They can be financial. They can be emotional. They can be relational with people outside our family and relational even within our own family. There are great and numerous trials and afflictions that come to the Christian. After 2,000 years of church history with the body of Christ being persecuted, you think that we could all accept this. But it's hard. And I wonder if it's not especially hard for us living in a Western country where the government has never targeted Christians. But it's beginning to change, isn't it? I think probably most of you heard that there was a television morning 
show, The View, where um, one of the women on that show, one of the hosts, was talking about our vice president, who claims not only to talk to Jesus, but to hear Jesus talking to him. And that host of that television program said that is a mental illness. So um, the leader, uh, Billy Graham's son, I just drew a blank, Franklin Graham wrote a response to that. And he says, you know, that should scare us. Because in any society, people with a mental illness are locked up for their own safety and for the safety of others. Is this a road that we want to go down saying that people who claim a personal relationship with God, who hear Him and are led by Him, have a mental illness and that they need to be locked up? It would seem that when Peter wrote this, that this, this isn't a time if we know, and we, nobody knows exactly when any of these epistles were written. We have a pretty good ballpark idea, but we don't know exactly. But it would seem that the Nero in Rome has officially begun persecuting Christians. And that it's likely that that persecution within the city of Rome is now going to spread through the entire empire. And so that this persecution is not just something that happens here and there. That it's not, in, it's, these trials are not just the basic trials that come from living in a fallen world. But this is organized opposition by the government. When he says, fiery trial, one writer I, I read said, he may have actually not been speaking metaphorically but literally, because Nero was dipping Christians in oil, impaling them on stakes, and lighting their bodies, and illuminating the cities of Rome. That is a literal, fiery trial. And if that was happening in Rome, there was no reason to think it couldn't happen over the entire empire. How do you share that news with your kids? How do you witness to people who don't know the Lord and they have at least heard about Christians being burned at the stake, impaled and burned? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. We should expect, expect it, that this is part and parcel with being a Christian. It comes upon you for your testing. So don't think that some strange thing is happening to you. In one way or another, we are all going to have our faith tested. Some more than others. I don't understand that, why it's some more than others. But we will all have our faith tested. For some, it could be to the point of death. And again, for some, it's going to be emotional, mental. Others, it's going to be physical. Others relational. But we are all going to have our faith tested. The last thing we should do personally is to be surprised and think it shouldn't be happening. And I want to follow that up with, and the second thing that we should never do is to think something is wrong with somebody else who is having their faith tested. 
Something's wrong if we're not having our faith tested. Christians have their faith tested. And we will throughout our lives in various ways. So with every negative that Peter says in this paragraph, he follows with a positive. So the negatives, don't be surprised. But the positive is, keep on rejoicing. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now, three times he's going to make specific reference to suffering in this paragraph. The first time, it's the suffering of Christ. The second time, it's suffering as a Christian. And the third time, it's suffering according to the will of God. So that's quite a bit in one paragraph. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We suffer as Christians. And we suffer according to the will of God. I have come to think that because God knows that things need to be repeated over and over for us to to get the message, that he will say the same thing in slightly different ways so that we get the picture here. When a Christian suffers, he is in some sense participating in the actual sufferings of Christ. Now, there's some mystery here. I don't fully understand it. But this is what Scripture is saying, that it's not just a Christian suffering in isolation, but he is participating in the very sufferings of Christ. And that means there's honor here, that God would allow us to suffer as Christ suffered. Paul speaks to this twice in the book of Philippians. It's not just in Philippians, but probably two of his better or or more well-known references to the fellowship of sufferings with Christ are in Philippians. The first is in chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It has been granted to you. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. And then, very well-known verse in chapter 3, Paul says that I may be found in him, not having received um, a a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, um, the, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In another place, Paul says, I must fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ. When a Christian suffers, it is not because there's something wrong. We need to rejoice, because in some mysterious sense, We are actually participating in the sufferings of Christ. And God says, that has been granted to you. It is a privilege. Rejoice in it. See, that is a mindset that this world cannot understand. That when the trials come, we go, wow, thank you, God. You're giving me the privilege to, in some sense, participate in what Christ himself went through. I am being honored. This is not a dishonor. This is an honor. Thank you, God, for these sufferings that you have allowed to come into my life. This is supernatural. 
Keep on rejoicing. Clearly, the idea is this isn't just something we do only when we suffer, but the suffering should not stop the rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, which would mean when we appear before him, you may rejoice with exaltation. So there seems to be some connection between how much we will rejoice when Christ is revealed to how we are rejoicing during trial and affliction. When we rejoice now, we will rejoice all the more when we see him in his glory. I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to that day. And I really want to be able to stand in the presence of God and see Jesus for the first time and rejoice to the full extent that God wants me to rejoice. And Peter seems to be saying that that will in measure be dependent upon our rejoicing now in the sufferings that we go through. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Doesn't feel like it, does it? You are blessed. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when men say all kinds of evil against you on account of my name. You are blessed. I've been cussed. It doesn't feel like a blessing. I, we, you know, I've made mention of it before. It hasn't happened in a long time, but we've got a, a neighbor um, near us at his hill who, who through the years has cussed me out more than once. One occasion, he actually called up the office and, and, and left a message cussing us all out. And when it went beep because he had extended his message, he called back and finished what he was saying. <laughs> So he left two messages on there. You know, and you listen to that. You know, the secretary came in the next morning and hit play on the, on the phone answering machine. She's going, oh, my word, hair's being blown back. And she goes, message two. And then, so it's more of the same. And you're just going, you know, you don't go, oh, thank you, Jesus. I am blessed today. It doesn't feel like that. But Peter's saying, you are blessed. You are blessed. Rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. So the, the, it's not to fight back. It's not to retaliate. It's not to get big with this person. But it's to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the blessing of suffering for the name of Christ. The spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. This is a clear reference to the Shekinah glory. Now, we already have the Shekinah glory within us because the Shekinah glory is God himself. And we have God living in us. So in the Old Testament, the glory was appearing in various places. Moses in the burning bush and Mount Sinai and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that traveled with with Israel throughout the wilderness. All of that was the Shekinah glory, the, the glory that ultimately settled on the temple, and then according to Ezekiel, was lifted from the temple, and then we come to John chapter 1, and we're told that Jesus is the glory of God. And we're told that Jesus has come to live within us. So we already have the spirit of glory residing within us. And Peter says, it's because of Christ 
that we are suffering. Because the darkness hates the light. And the light, God himself, resides in us and upon us. And when we're suffering, it's, it's a reaction to the light. And we need to consider that we are blessed to have God's presence and God's glory. I, I've said it many times over the years in teaching um, First Kings and when Solomon dedicated the temple and that glory came upon that building. And all the peop people were coming from all over the world to search out the wisdom of a man. And that man, Solomon, knew God was drawing them so that they would hear concerning God and leave believers because God said so that the earth would be filled with the glory of God. Solomon knew why God's glory had been poured out on him and why God's glory had been put out on the temple. And it wasn't for Solomon. It was for the nations of the earth to turn to God. And all he had to do with every visitor who came from the ends of the earth was point out the window of his palace and say, I'm not the big deal. God is the big deal. There was no greater blessing for Israel than the blessing of God's presence. And there is no greater blessing for the Christian than the blessing of God's presence. He indwells us. And because he is in us and upon us, we're going to suffer because darkness hates light. But we can rejoice with exaltation. There is a suffering that is not a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. As Christians, it is possible for us to suffer because of our own sin. Verse 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. I only read this last night when I was doing some more studying. Apparently, one of the disciples of John, the Apostle John, this is hard for me to believe, but, but, but an actual disciple of the Apostle John became the leader of a gang of thieves. Amazing. Christians are capable of anything. And there are those occasions when Christians will say, well, I'm suffering because of Jesus. No, they're suffering because of their sin. Because they've been stupid, or because they've been dishonest, or because they've been immoral. Not all suffering that a Christian goes through is because of the name of Jesus. Sometimes he's suffering because he deserves it. And so Peter is very careful to say, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer. Christians can commit murder. Or a thief, Christians can steal. Or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, and we all know we're capable of that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. When was the first time man felt shame? In the garden, right? Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and all of a sudden they see themselves as naked, and they felt ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they hid in the bushes. And God came and said, where are you? And Adam's going, we hid because we felt 
ashamed. With that sense of shame, in the hiding that goes with it, is a motivation of self-protection. When you feel ashamed, you want to hide because you fear for your own protection. It's been said that the, that the motivation of self-preservation was something that Adam never knew before he sinned. There was no sense of self-preservation in him until after he sinned. And I think about it now, and I occasionally when I'm up at Ravencrest or sister school, I'll take a little four-hour class with the second-year students teaching on ethics. And it's occurred to me that basically there are two principal motivations in life for a Christian. One is ungodly, and the other is godly. And we typically are either being motivated by self-preservation, and you think about how many decisions you make, how many statements that come out of your mouth, how many choices that you make, have at their heart fear. And we are acting out of self-preservation, right? Or we act out of a desire for God to be glorified. And typically, those two have nothing in common. You look at the good kings in the Old Testament who prayed, and as they sought God, and, and their, their, their whole life is about to come to an end, the nation's about to be destroyed. When King Asa had a million-man army come up against him from Ethiopia, and he cries out to God. The same thing with Hezekiah and Josiah. There are people who who's, the, over, the odds are overwhelmingly against them, and they see nothing but death. And all three of those kings in their prayer, they go, God, we're going to die. Self-preservation. But they didn't stop with that. But they said, God, this isn't about us. This is about your name and you being glorified. For your name's sake, God, glorify yourself by delivering us. So were they concerned about their life? Yes. But was that the biggest motivation to preserve themselves? No. God be glorified. And God was glorified. And we can either be motivated by shame, and at the root of that is self-preservation, or we can be motivated by the glory of God. When we suffer as a Christian, participating in the sufferings of Christ, we have no reason to feel ashamed. We can hold our heads up. We have not done anything wrong. We are suffering because of our identity with Christ and our association with Him. Peter felt ashamed. You think, I mean, it's been amazing to me to study through 1 Peter and, and realize how many of these things he's saying were at one time either true or not true of him. Remember, Peter felt ashamed of Jesus. And three times he denied him. I'm not with that man. I'm not with him. Fear for his life. Self-preservation. And then when the cock crowed and Jesus looked at him, he truly felt shame. We are either going to be motivated by self-preservation and trying to avoid shame. And we compromise on who we are. Act like we're not the people that we are. I heard a few months ago that the Coptic Christians in Egypt 
when they receive Christ, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to put a small cross on the inside of their right wrist because they knew that they were going to suffer. They knew that the Christian life was a, was a life of persecution and affliction. And they knew there would be the temptation to compromise and be ashamed. And so they put that cross on the inside of their wrist so that, that no one could ever, they could not deny who they were. It was always there. That's pretty amazing. But they were that intent on not being ashamed of who they were. So somebody says, are you a Christian? And they were tempted to say no. All somebody had to do was just reach their arm and pull it out. And they go, don't tell me you're not. You wouldn't have that cross there if you weren't a Christian. Pretty powerful stuff. Glory in the name of Christ. We need to understand... God's ways. And being a Christian means we should expect to suffer. And that is because judgment begins with the household of God. I wonder if part of what Peter is saying, how is the world ever going to fear God if they see Christians live a trouble-free life? When we suffer in the name of Christ and rejoice, the world has to see there's something supernatural going on here. These people are not being punished by their God. They're not being rejected by their God, or they wouldn't be rejoicing in what they're going through. But truly, they are being tested. They're being disciplined. They're being refined. They're being matured. But they have no reason to think no Christian has the reason to think that judgment, that, that, that suffering and affliction is because God is judging us. Jesus says, everyone who places their faith in him passes out of judgment and into life. But there is a sense where God is bringing affliction and persecution in order to refine us, discipline us, and that can look like judgment, especially to an unbeliever. But this is the worst we will ever go through. And you can say to an unbeliever, this is the best you will ever have it. Isn't that true? You're looking at me, unbeliever, and you're going, why would I want to be a Christian and go through what you're going through? And you can honestly say, what you see me going through, as hard as it is, is the worst I will ever experience. But if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ, what you're experiencing now is the best you will ever experience. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, what's it going to be for them? If we, the people of God, suffer, what's it going to be for those who don't know him? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? He's not saying that we are saved by works, but he's saying saved people, righteous people. Because see, you're not, you, if, if, if he's not already righteous, he's not saved. 
It is with difficulty that the righteous, the righteous is righteous because he's saved. It is with difficulty that he goes through life. It is with difficulty that he enters into glory. It is with difficulty that he passes through this life, experiences sanctification, and stands before the Lord. But what will become of the godless man? Much worse than anything we will ever experience here. Therefore let those also, therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We are not to, to be surprised. We are to keep on rejoicing. We are not to feel ashamed. We are to glorify God. And we are not to misunderstand God's ways. But we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. See, if I don't understand that there's, tr there's suffering and trial for the Christian, if I don't understand the ways of God, then why would I entrust myself to him? because it sure looks like he has it out for me. And Peter's saying he doesn't have it out for you. He's testing us, refining us, purifying us. He is our good, and he is the faithful creator. Of all the things that Peter could have called him, he could have said faithful savior. He could have called him loving father, but he calls him faithful creator. I wonder, Paul, if, if Peter's not saying, because creator deals with all that God is. He is the one who brought this world into being. He is the one who is sustaining this world. He is the one who's going to bring this world to the conclusion that he has in mind for it. He is all-powerful, and he is faithful. And in the midst of trial, we can trust the all-powerful one to be faithful. We trust him, the faithful creator, in the midst of suffering to do what is right. Now, there's two ways to read that. We can tr we're trusting him to do what is right, and we do. But it seems that Peter has in mind, we continue to do what is right in the midst of everything being wrong because we have entrusted our souls to the faithful creator. Because if I don't believe that God's faithful and God is in control, I'm not going to entrust my soul to him and I'm not going to continue to do what is right. When my son was in Bible school, it wasn't a, always a very positive experience for him. And he said, Dad, toward the end of the year, most of the students were just going, the good students were going, what difference does it make? Because the unrighteous are not being punished. I'm paraphrasing his words. Nothing happens. And so there was the temptation to just throw in the towel and go, what difference does it make? Because, man, you do the right thing, and you are not rewarded, and you do the wrong thing, and you're not punished. So why trust my soul to a God where everything seems to be wrong? Peter brings us back to the truth. He is the faithful creator. And we are to entrust our souls to him and continue to do what is right by faith. It is normal to experience persecution. 
When Watchman Nee wrote his book, The Normal Christian Life, <laughs> he was not talking about persecution, but there should have been a chapter in that book on there. The normal Christian life is a life of persecution and trial. Something's wrong if we claim to be living a godly world in Satan's kingdom and we don't have any trouble from Satan. We are going to suffer as we choose to live a godly life. Paul promised it. But God is the one in whom we trust. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We suffer as a Christian. We suffer according to the will of God. The proper response to rejoice, give God the glory, and entrust your souls to Him as you continue to do what is right. I hope this encourages you. I need messages like this. We are all weak. We are all cowards. We are all self-indulgent. No one likes to suffer, and we should not pray, God, bring it on. (laughs) And we need to be reminded of the truth. As bad as it ever will be in this world for Christians, it is momentary and light affliction in comparison to the exceeding weight of glory that is coming. And it is a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be counted worthy, to suffer with him, to suffer for his name, to suffer as a Christian according to the will of God. And we should pray for each other as the trials come in other people's lives, that they are sustained, that they are encouraged, and that they know the grace of God to continue to rejoice in what is happening in their lives. Some among us, even in this little fellowship, are going through some pretty big trials. If we're not all there, we will be sooner or later. We have a faithful creator. It does not depend on us. It depends on him. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it truly does not depend on us. Salvation is the work of God. And remaining steadfast, rejoicing, giving glory to you, entrusting our souls to you as we do what is right, is also your work, God. It is evidence of your redemptive power and grace in our lives. Lord, we want these things to be true of us, that no matter what comes into our life, that we be a people who continue to rejoice, keeping on in rejoicing. That we glorify you and not shrink back in shame and that we give you our complete trust as we trust you with our souls and continue by your grace to do what is right. Thank you for these truths, O God. We do want them to be more than just platitudes, but God, for you to work these things in our life, that we would be filled with peace, with joy, that our hearts would be at rest because our trust is in you, our faithful creator. In Jesus' name, amen.